Good morning, everyone. Lindsay, thank you. We're grateful to have Lindsay with us as Amy is on vacation the next couple of weeks. And whether you are live in person here or via live stream, let me take this opportunity to welcome you all on this 4th of July to Lake Oconee Presbyterian Church. My name is Jeff Birch, and I'm the pastor here at Lake Oconee, and it's my privilege to be able to welcome you all. If you're visiting with us, we offer a very, very warm welcome to you. We're grateful that on this holiday you've chosen to worship with us. It's our hope we come in here together and worship the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings, the one who is the God and the Lord uh, over his beloved community made up of every tongue and tribe and people and language. And then after worship service, you all go and have a wonderful fourth Burgers, dogs, fireworks, all that fun stuff. I want to invite all of you. There should be on the end of each row a little, looks like a notebook. It's a friendship pad. And this is for visitors and regular attenders and members alike. Fill that out, sign it, pass it down to your neighbor next to you, and it just gives us the opportunity to get to know you uh, a little bit. Uh, I just returned on Friday evening from our denomination's General Assembly, so please, if this morning's sermon lacks the energy you're used to, I'm tired. Do you know they kept us up till one in the morning working? Can you believe that? And I will have much more in the weeks to come to share with you about General Assembly. For now, I just want to uh, basically extend the invitation for any of you all to approach me, ask me anything you'd like about our General Assembly. I would love to have a conversation with you and do that as well. Our officer nominations have been extended. Today is the deadline, and so if you have any last-minute nominations for elder and deacon, we encourage you to get them in. Now, I haven't seen her yet. Is Brenda Roberts here? I thought Brenda wanted to give an announcement today. I may be mistaken. Remember I said the 1 a.m. stuff? That's about four hours past my bedtime. So I may very well be mistaken. I thought she wanted to give an announcement today. Maybe it'll be next Sunday. I'm not real sure. A uh, couple of other things remind you all about our ministry, English as a Second Language. Right now we want to get started in the fall. And what we need, if you remember Russell Puppy's announcement from last week, what we are looking for is volunteers from here who are willing to either teach or assist or volunteer in any way. You can see Russell Puppy. Russell, raise your hand so they know where to find you. See Russell if you have any questions regarding that, and he'll share with you kind of the structure, the training, what it looks like, but we're very excited about that as well. So those are some of the things that are going on just in the way of announcements in the life of the church. Uh, we are now preparing our hearts to enter into the very presence of God to worship the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who reigns over all things. And so as Lindsay plays the prelude, let's rest our hearts, calm our hearts in the love of Christ and prepare to worship and adore him this morning.
We may not be a thousand in number, but oh, for a thousand tongues to sing our great Redeemer's praise. Our call to worship this morning is from Psalm 96. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. And we are here to glory in your holy name, to declare your praises and your worth. Grant us, Father, your spirit. Grant us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, your presence. We invoke your name, the triune name of the Lord God, to join with us that we may sing and tell of your glory. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing. Crown him with many crowns. As we continue to worship the Lord this morning, we come to our confession of faith, which is the Apostles' Creed, 
which unites believers across time, roots us in that ancient faith, and unites us as believers. So together in unison, my friends, what is it that we believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. I can't help every time we recite the creed together, it just gives me hope. It gives me hope that the Lord is God, that he reigns, that we believe together in the resurrection of the dead, that God will bring about his new world, new heavens and new earth. Let's stand together and sing, Behold Our God.
we continue to do just that, to behold our God and to come before his throne of grace in praise and adoration. Printed in your bulletins is the Lord's Prayer, which Jesus himself taught us to pray. We will say that in unison, and then I will lead us in a time of pastoral prayer. Let's pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. Lord, you are our shepherd. We shall not want. You cause us to lie down in green pastures. You lead us beside still waters. We thank you that you are our heavenly father. And we thank you that you are our father, that you knit us together as a body, as a beautiful community, that you bring us together from diverse backgrounds and diverse peoples to with one voice come under your rule and come under your reign and to trust you as our shepherd to take care of us, to provide for us, to nurture us, to protect us, to guide us, to lead us. Hallowed be your name. May in everything we do, we set apart your name as holy. We come to worship you and we lay down our lives as living sacrifices, honoring your name. May our hearts as well long for the coming of your kingdom where your will will finally be done, be accomplished on earth as it is in heaven. We pray, Father, that this lake area, that these cities, that these counties would look much more like the city of God than the city of man. We pray for hearts, men and women and boys and girls, to turn to Christ, to turn to you. We long and pray for the coming of your kingdom. We pray for all to experience freedom, and blessing, and justice, and the rule of God. And we are dependent upon you as Jesus, you taught us to pray, give us this day. So for today, we look to you for our daily bread, physical, spiritual, to nourish us. We are reliant upon you. And we ask your forgiveness, not just of the things that we've done, but the things we fail to do. We ask your forgiveness for the comportment and the disposition of our heart. Here we are, we pray, give us this day our daily bread, and how often do we walk around in self-reliance? How often do we walk around trusting our own wisdom, trusting our own rightness, rather than being dependent upon you for all things? And so we ask you to forgive us as we forgive others. We pray that we would be a gracious people that we would forgive as we have been forgiven. And we pray for our holiness. Lord, each of us probably have different and particular temptations. We pray for our struggles and our weakness. We pray to admit our weakness 
and to come before you trusting the power of Christ. So lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For we pray that yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and yours is the glory. And we ask, Father, for your glory in all things. Your glory over this church, your glory over those who are hurting, your glory over those who are afflicted, your glory over those who have particular needs. We lift them before you. Come close. Lord, be merciful to us, for we express our need of you. And we pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord and our Savior. Amen.
as we approach God's Word this morning, I know I am so acutely aware of my need for the Holy Spirit. Let's turn our hearts and our attention to God as we pray and ask for His blessing upon His Word. I pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning. Show each of us, individually and corporately, what we need to know and learn from your word. And Father, help us, help the eyes of our hearts be enlightened, be open to know in a much more deeper fashion what is the hope to what we have been called for, the glorious riches of our inheritance in the saints, and the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe. May we fall more deeply in love with Jesus Christ, in whom are found all the riches of wisdom and knowledge. We pray in his matchless name. Amen. If you would turn with me, uh, we are continuing in our study of the book of Romans. And if you remember, some of you who might be new to the church are going, "Uh uh-oh, is this going to be eight years we're going to be at this? I'm breaking it down kind of into four different mini-series. So we do Romans 1 through 4 over a period of few months, then we'll take a break and do some other things. We'll come back and go Romans 5 through 8. And so hopefully it gets us, but you're not kind of again, again and again, and so it won't be eight years through the whole thing. But we are in Romans chapter 2, looking at verses 1 through 16, and what a topic. Welcome to the 4th of July. Understanding judgment. Popular topic, right? I bet you you're ready for that. But here's the thesis. You don't understand the good news of Jesus. Or maybe I'll word it this way. It is only to the degree that you understand the bad news of of God's judgment, of our deserving of his judgment, that the good news of Jesus absolutely reverberates in our hearts and in our lives. So that's our goal. So yes, we have to understand some of the bad news so that the good news absolutely comes alive to us. So friends, hear the word of God. Paul writes, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. 
For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You've heard of the saying that beauty is in the eye of the beholder? You've heard of that before? Somewhere I remember reading, I I could be wrong there. You could Google it and prove me wrong, but I think it was attributed to the philosopher Plato. Beauty is the eye of the beholder. In other words, beauty is in a sense what we as the subject make it out to be. We get to decide what is beautiful. So for me, a golf course is beautiful. I have to admit, maybe I'm confessing sin here a little bit. When the Lord called me to Georgia... I did go first. Yes, Lake Oconee Press. I'm excited. Can't wait. Now, here's the confession part. The second part went 70 miles to the east. I know what is over there. There's a plot of land. I may have to preach my idolatry sermon again. I want to get on that Augusta National Golf Course. Why? Because beauty is in the eye of the beholder. And I happen to think that Magnolia Lane might be one of the most beautiful places on this earth, and I can't wait to get there. Yes, it is a bucket list item. Now, here's the problem. It's one thing, we can joke around about these things a little bit, but it's another thing, and we need to admit this a little bit, that we also approach the scriptures with that same mindset. We kind of have the idea of beauty is in the eye of beholder. Some of us We love the fact, yes, doctrine, theology, I love that. Others of us, relationships, God is love, warm, fuzzy. We need to have some humility and recognize that we all tend to be a bit subjective when it comes to not only our theology, not only our approach to the scriptures, but our approach to God and others in relationship. We need to recognize we all approach God and others with some of our own cultural baggage, our own preferences, our own backgrounds. None of us are culturally neutral. See, we need the whole counsel of God, and we need to admit and let the Scriptures, the whole of the Scriptures, shape us and govern us. And so one of the places we need to recognize and have the the scriptures shape us and govern us is with the reality of the judgment of God. It may not be popular, but it's a real thing. We can't approach things like that with our own preferences. And we need to, and remember I said this last week as we approached this at the end of Romans chapter 1, that we need the judgment of God. We need an angry God. We need to have a God that gets angry at sin. 
We need to have an angry God and a God who judges sin if we're going to live in any manner of hope. I love how one commentator put it when he says, God's wrath is the response of his holiness toward moral evil. In a world of evil, God's wrath is good news. That's the thesis. See, the gospel is an announcement of good news, but it's good news against the backdrop of very bad news. And you must deal with the reality. Remember I said, we have to let the scriptures shape us and govern us. We must deal with the reality of this bad news if we're going to understand. And more than just understand, if we're going to be transformed by this good news. So here we go. I'm going to uh, break from pattern and do this. And you're going to think, wow, I'm going to get out early. Not necessarily, but we're going to do a two-point sermon. Okay, so you're ready? Two points. The problem of judgment and the hope of judgment. Very simple to take notes from, too. See, you had to sit for a long scripture reading. Now it's easy to take notes. The problem of judgment and the hope of judgment. Remember back in chapter 1, the passage we looked at last week, verses 18 to 32, Paul told them that they were without excuse for suppressing the truth of God in unrighteousness. And we saw how God gave them over to all sorts of forms of depravity and corruption. Very easy to see who needs the gospel. Then, immediately in the beginning of chapter 2, you read, Therefore, you have no excuse. Huh. It's a little odd, confusing, isn't it? I get they don't have any excuse. That's easy to see. All the pagans out there, they don't have an excuse. Easy to see that. We read the list of all of that, but who is the you that has no excuse either? See, not only them, but you too. Who's Paul pointing the finger at here? And we're not sure right away, but there are a couple of things in the text that let us know. Now, we're not up to this yet, but verse 17, Paul identifies and refers to those who call themselves a Jew. Now, he's not as specific here, but what he is specific here is the type of person he is referring to. He is describing a personality type. And as the commentators tell us, he is turning here to a sort of imaginary representative of a real and identifiable group. And I love this. Here's your fancy uh, word for the day. What Paul is doing, you might enjoy this, he's using a rhetorical literary device known as a diatribe. See that? You know what a diatribe is? He's basically picturing an imaginary person or imaginary group of people but in it, he's applying it to all of us and saying, you might be this person. So in a sense, he is saying, wake up, pay attention. I'm using this literary device to describe a representative of a group of people. And what identifies them? Their style of relating. Because look at what the text says in verses 1 and following. Oh man, every one of you who judges. Huh. Is that any of us? None of us have that problem, right? You don't struggle with fault finding and being critical and maybe being just a little bit feeling of superiority 
terms of things. You're not highly critical, always, always have an opinion, know what's right, know who's right and who's wrong. You don't pass judgment on anyone, do you? Maybe we all need to look in the mirror here this morning. See, here's what's going on, and I have to admit, maybe you get tired of me quoting him, but I'm absolutely indebted to Tim Keller for showing us that in the Bible it is not just the pagans. He calls them the irreligious who need the gospel. But it's also us. You know who us are? The religious type, the conservative type, the moral type. The kind that wear, what color do you call my coat this morning? The kind of us that wear, you know, our Sunday best and the nice clothes. And we know who all the problem types are. See, verses 18 to 32, it's easy to see how those people, those filled with envy and murder and strife and shameful lusts, the boastful, it's easy to see how they miss the gospel. It's obvious. But this other group of people, not so obvious. Remember the point of these early chapters of the book of Romans. What Paul is doing here in chapters 1 and 2. He is basically showing us that we are all in the same boat. See, I think a lot of times we like to approach life, and not in our heads. We understand better. We know better. But again, I'm kind of going deeper. And we'll see what reveals these deeper attitudes in just a minute. But we approach life kind of thinking that there are two boats. The boats are filled with good people and the boats filled with bad people. And we all have our ways of defining who are the good people and who are the bad people. Paul also says there are two boats. And he says, all of you are in one boat, the boat of sin. And that boat is made up of religious, irreligious, pagans, conservative, theological, you name it. All are in that boat. And then there's the boat of rescue, the boat of grace, the boat of Christ. But we have to challenge a little bit our presuppositions. See, imagine yourself, you could be sitting in the congregation, congregation may be like this one, and you're hearing this letter read to you. You're there in first century Rome, and you're hearing the letter read to you, and you're thinking, that a boy, Paul. Go get him. I like this list. Charge. Take the hill, Paul. You're doing great. The problem with this world is, and fill in the blank. I can fill in the blank. It's easy for me to fill in the blank. But the problem, see we say the problem is them, and then the letter continues, and Paul says, you. And he says, you, therefore, have no excuse. In other words, there is another type of people who miss the gospel. As one commentator so aptly put it, he says, in chapter 2, Paul shows the Jews, and thus religious people, that they were missing the whole point of the gospel. The heart of the gospel, remember this is the thesis of Paul's letter, is that the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last. Paul is showing us that everyone runs from it and tries to avoid it. We run from it whenever we rely on anything or anyone else but Jesus and his perfect finished work. 
The pagans rely on their appetites, which become chains around their neck, but the religious people rely on religion and moral observance, which, according to verse 5, stores up God's wrath just as much. Now, that's the principle. Let's enter God's test tube. Remember I said the scriptures have to shape us and govern us. Let's enter the test tube of God's MRI, if you would. We all want to enter the MRI tube here for a second. How do we know? How do we know if we get it or not? How do we, as moral and religious people, know if we are running from and avoiding the gospel in our day-to-day lives, just like and in the same way the pagans, the obvious ways? See, we're looking at chapter 2 is all about the not-so-obvious ways. Here's the key. Paul says, look at your relationships. Specifically, look at your style of relating. See, how you relate reveals your understanding of the gospel. Remember the law of God? Paul is talking a lot about the law of God in this passage, isn't he? And what does Jesus say is the summary of the law? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Apparently, the summary of the law is love. Now, we all say we love, don't we? None of us walk around going, oh, yeah, I don't love. I I just blatantly hate people. I mean, none of us really admit that. So how do we go about diagnosing this? See, verse 2 tells us that God's judgment is based on truth. And part of that truth is the truth about ourselves. And be honest, that's not a truth we discover very easily about ourselves. I know I don't. I have to tell another story, a story on myself. It's not a story I'm very proud of. But again, it's a story. When I was in seminary and Tim Keller was my teacher, it's a story that involves him. And see, I didn't grow up. Remember, I didn't grow up in the Reformed tradition. I had never heard of Reformed theology, any of this. I came to Christ through young life. I was what they call broadly evangelical. Believed in the Word of God, believed in Jesus. I had no idea of what Reformed theology was all about. And then I got to seminary. Oh, boy. And then I was like a caged lion. Whoa! Look at all this! This is unbelievable! This is awesome! And I became what I would call a heretic-seeking missile. Where are the heretics? I'll go find them. And unfortunately... My wife became the chief heretic in my house. Ask her about this. She'll tell you it was true. My poor wife, who has more love in her big toe than I have in my whole body, she did things like cultivate the fruit of the Spirit and show encouragement and hospitality where I, all I cared about is, do you believe in predestination? And usually with that kind of voice, And so one day, I'm sitting in the car with Dr. Keller. And I'm, to be honest, I'm railing about my wife. And all I'm doing is complaining about her. 
Tim, you wouldn't believe she doesn't get this. It's clear as the nose on your face. It's so obvious. It's right there. Read Ephesians 1. You've got to see it. You've... And he just gently turns and looks at me and he says, Jeff, do you enjoy being the Holy Spirit? Huh. You therefore have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another. What was I doing? I was passing judgment on my wife. But look at what happens. You condemn yourself. Why? Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice the very same things. I love how, and don't get mad at me, I think this reads as a beautiful paraphrase, a beautiful commentary on the scriptures, Eugene Peterson's The Message. I love how he puts it. I think it gets it across very well. He says, those people are on a dark spiral downward. But if you think that leaves you on the high ground where you can point your finger at others, think again. Every time you criticize someone, you condemn yourself. It takes one to know one. Judgmental criticism of others is a well-known way of escaping deception in your own crimes and misdemeanors. Do you hear the logic Paul is using here? He's saying, first, there is no one who lives up to God's standards or our own standards. There is no one who lives up to even your own standards. For you who pass judgment do the very same things. And second, this means that the standards we use on others, how right they are, how conservative they are, how understanding they are, will be the standard by which we are judged. You are condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Francis Schaeffer, the theologian, illustrated it this way. He said, these verses are an invisible tape recorder. Paul means it as if there is an invisible tape recorder around the necks of us all. It only records things we say to others about how they ought to live and behave. Then at the last day, God the judge will take the tape recorder off, the, off your neck and say... I'm going to be completely fair. I am simply going to judge you on the basis of what your own words, what you said on this tape recorder, say are the standards for human behavior. And there will not be one person in history who will be able to stand in judgment against his or her own words. Let me ask you a pointed question. How closely do you pay attention to the words you say to others? How closely do you pay attention to the words you post on Facebook? How closely do you pay attention to your attitude and comportment and disposition towards others? See, I have a sure way fire of telling. I, could come, I can come, if I call any of you this week and I say, I would like to visit you. You're probably going to say yes. Now, after I give you this illustration, you're probably going to say, no, let's rethink this. But if I call you and say, I would like to pay a visit to you. I would love to get to know you. Now, let's say I come to you and it's a husband and wife. 
And I come, husband and wife, we sit down, and after we have our pleasantries, and we sip some good southern sweet tea together, and we do that, I look at the wife, and I say to the wife, if there is one thing you could change about your husband, be quiet over here, there is one thing you could change about him, what would it be? How scary would that be? See, it's all about how we come across. Have you been paying attention to the words, to the attitudes? See, we ought to be extremely careful with how we relate. That's the problem of judgment. So what is our hope in judgment? See, we need a God who judges in order to understand, look at the text with me, the kindness, the tolerance, the patience, the forbearance of God. Let's spend just a couple of minutes looking at the character of God. Remember Paul's main point here in this passage. This is where I'm indebted to Dr. Keller again. He is showing us, he is showing religious people, he is showing moral people, he is showing conservative people. He is showing people who think they have it together, people who think they have all their theological I's dotted and theological T's crossed. He's showing all, that's all of us in this room, by the way, that we need the gospel just as much as those who are blowing it royally with wine, women, and song, and whatever else you want to put. He is showing us that we need the unfathomable riches of God's kindness and grace in Jesus Christ. He is showing us that we desperately need the gospel. See, how do we become the kind of person that can relate to people? Not just say we speak the truth in love, but truly, genuinely relate to people with love. We have to be a people who are saturated in grace. Look at verses 4 and 5. It says, do you presume, I think other translations say, show contempt on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, these are very dangerous verses because contempt or scorn, this kind of do you presume, is much more of an attitude or a disposition than a belief or theological position. That's why it comes down to why we relate. That's why it's revealed in how we treat other people. Not just do we treat other people, we all say we have the feeling of love, but do we treat other people with how the Bible describes love? With a non-anxious, non-irritable patience. See, look at God's kindness Look at his tolerance. Look at his patience and forbearance. Do you realize no one gets what we deserve? How long does God wait in executing judgment? See, again, I'm going to quote Eugene Peterson who says, God is not soft, but he is kind. And where do we see his kindness most clearly? We see it at the cross. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. I love this because for so many of us, we have to ask... How do I tangibly see, demonstrated, practically? We look at our circumstances. It's, 
It's difficult sometimes to see God's love. But Paul writes, God shows. In other words, he demonstrates, he makes real, he makes practical, he makes tangible his love for us in this. That while we were still sinners, I want you to underline, highlight, do whatever you have to do to remember those words. While we were still sinners. That means sinner first, Christ died for us. Not get your act together. Not morally pick yourself up by the bootstraps and get it together. Not become somehow fit. While we were still present day, still sinners, still rebellious against God, still even those of us who are in Christ, not really appreciating the grace of God, certainly not being transformed fully by the grace of God, while we were still sinners, how does God react? Christ died for He lavishes us with love and kindness and patience. In other words, if you want to read 1 Corinthians 13 correctly, instead of reading it, love is patient, love is kind, love doesn't... Really, that's a picture of Christ. Read it, Christ is patient with me. Christ is kind towards me. Christ doesn't get irritable towards me. Christ is not self-seeking. Christ is not rude. That's love biblically defined. Or do we show contempt? Again, in how we relate, how we come across to the riches of God's kindness. See, I just want you to think about it this way. We all desire transformation in in our own lives and in the lives of others. We all want to see transformation. How do we think we'll get from point A to point B? Here's how I act most of the time. I think, if I only teach them well enough, if I only give them enough truth, if I only maybe beat the truth into them, and I'm absolutely pure, completely get it 100% right, they'll be brought from point A to point B. But that's not... Remember, we have to be shaped and governed by the Scriptures. Beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. The beauty of the gospel is what gets us from point A to point B is the kindness of God. It is the kindness and the grace of God. And for us, see, if we struggle with how we come across, with showing contempt for the riches of kindness, of God's kindness, think about the cross. Think about the cross. Think about Jesus Dying for us. Think about the fact that our rebellion, our sin, our lack of love was so great that it took the Son of God dying on the cross to bring us back to reconcile us to God. Think about how much He loves you. See, let's not show contempt for the kindness and the patience and the forbearance of God. Let's be a people who drink it in, to be saturated in it. I love how Brennan Manning in his book, Ragamuffin Gospel, and aren't we all ragamuffins? I mean, let's be, I am. I love how he put it. He says, risk everything on Jesus. The Ragamuffin Gospel says, we can't lose because we have nothing to lose. For we live under the sign of the cross. Father, 
may we learn as a people that it doesn't come naturally for us to drink in the beauty and the kindness and the goodness of the cross, that that is not naturally where we go. Our default position is going to be to get it right, to be right, to whatever our natural style of relating is. Lord, this is in a sense so counterintuitive for us. Help us to acknowledge that. And Father, we pray that we would be a people saturated in your grace and kindness, recognizing that it is your kindness that leads us to repentance. Help us on this journey to teach us these things. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing together, It Is Well With My Soul.
friends, now receive the Lord's benediction. May the love of God the Father, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now, this week, and forevermore. Amen.